Section 18 of Old and New Masters by Robert Lind. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 12. Turgenev. Mr. Edward Garnett has recently collected his prefaces to the novels and stories of Turgenev, and refashioned them into a book in praise of the genius of the most charming of Russian authors. I am afraid the word charming has lost so much of its stamp and brightness with use as to become almost meaningless. But we apply it to Turgenev in its fullest sense. We call him charming as Pater called Athens charming. He is one of those authors whose books we love because they reveal a personality sensitive, affectionate, pitiful. There are some persons who, when they come into a room, immediately make us feel happier. Turgenev seems to come into the room in his books with just such a welcome presence. That is why I wish Mr. Garnett had made his book a biographical as well as a critical study. He quotes Turgenev as saying, All my life is in my books. Still, there are a great many facts recorded about him in the letters and reminiscences of those who knew him, and he was known in half the countries of Europe, out of which we could construct a portrait. One finds in the life of Sir Charles Dilk, for instance, that Dilk considered Turgenev in the front rank as a conversationalist. This opinion interested one all the more because one had come to think of Turgenev as something of a shy giant. I remember, too, reading in some French book a description of Turgenev as a strange figure in the literary circles of Paris, a large figure with a curious chastity of mind who seemed bewildered by some of the barbarous jests of civilized men of genius. There are indeed, as I have said, plenty of suggestions for a portrait of Turgenev quite apart from his novels. Mr. Garnett refers to some of them in two excellent biographical chapters. He reminds us, for example, of the immense generosity of Turgenev to his contemporaries and rivals as when he introduced the work of Tolstoy to a French editor. Listen, said Turgenev, here is copy for your paper of an absolutely first-rate kind. This means I am not its author. The master, for he is a real master, is almost unknown in France, but I assure you on my soul and conscience that I do not consider myself worthy to unloose the latchet of his shoes. The letter he addressed to Tolstoy from his deathbed, urging him to return from propaganda to literature, is famous, but it is a thing to which one always returns fondly as an example of the noble disinterestedness of a great man of letters. I cannot recover, Turgenev wrote. That is out of the question. I am writing to you specially to say how glad I am to be your contemporary, and to express my last and sincere request. My friend, return to literary activity. That gift came to you whence comes all the rest. Ah, how happy I should be if I could think my request would have an effect on you. I can neither walk, nor eat, nor sleep. It is wearisome even to repeat it all. My friend, great writer of our Russian land, listen to my request. I can write no more. I am tired. One sometimes wonders how Tolstoy and Dostoevsky could ever have quarreled with a friend of so beautiful a character as Turgenev. Perhaps it was that there was something barbarous and brutal in each of them that was intolerant to his almost feminine refinement. They were both men of action in literature, militant and by nature propagandist, and probably Turgenev was as impatient with the faults of their strength as they were with the faults of his weakness. He was a man whom it was possible to disgust. 
though he was Zola's friend, he complained that l'assommoir left a bad taste in the mouth. Similarly, he discovered something almost sadistic in the matter in which Dostoevsky let his imagination dwell on scenes of cruelty and horror. And he was as strongly repelled by Dostoevsky's shrieking pan-Slavism as by his sensationalism among horrors. One can guess exactly the frame of mind he was in when, in the course of an argument with Dostoevsky, he said, You see, I consider myself a German. This has been quoted against Turgenev as though he meant it literally and as though it were a confession of denationalization. His words were more subtle than that in their irony. What they meant was simply, if to be a Russian is to be a bigot, like most of you Pan-Slav enthusiasts, then I am no Russian, but a European. Has he not put the whole gospel of nationalism in half a dozen sentences in Rudin? He refused, however, to adopt along with his nationalism the narrowness with which it has been too often associated. This refusal was what destroyed his popularity in Russia in his lifetime. It is because of this refusal that he has been pursued with belittlement by one Russian writer after another since his death. He had that sense of truth which always upsets the orthodox. This sense of truth applied to the portraiture of his contemporaries was felt like an insult in those circles of mixed idealism and make-believe, the circles of the political partisans. A great artist may be a member and even an enthusiastic member of a political party, but in his art he cannot become a political partisan without ceasing to be an artist. In his novels, Turgenev regarded it as his life work to portray Russia truthfully, not to paint and powder and prettify it for show purposes. And the result was an outburst of fury on the part of those who were asked to look at themselves as real people, instead of the masterpieces of a professional flatterer. When Fathers and Children was published in 1862, the only people who were pleased were the enemies of everything in which Turgenev believed. I received congratulations, he wrote, almost caresses, from people of the opposite camp, from enemies. This confused me, wounded me. But my conscience did not reproach me. I knew very well I had carried out honestly the type I had sketched, carried it out not only without prejudice, but positively with sympathy. This is bound to be the fate of every artist who takes his political party, or his church, or any other propagandist group to which he belongs as his subject. He is a painter, not a vindicator, and he is compelled to exhibit numerous crooked features and faults in such a way as to wound the vanity of his friends and delight the malice of his enemies. Artistic truth is as different from propagandist truth as daylight from limelight, and the artist will always be hated by the propagandist as worse than an enemy a treacherous friend. Turgenev deliberately accepted as his life-work a course which could only lead to the miseries of being misunderstood. When one thinks of the long years of denunciation and hatred he endured for the sake of his art, one cannot but regard him as one of the heroic figures of the nineteenth century. He has, Mr. Garnett tells us, been accused of timidity and cowardice by uncompromising radicals and revolutionaries. In an access of self-reproach, he once declared that his character was comprised in one word, poltroon. He showed neither timidity nor cowardice, however, in his devotion to truth. His first and last advice to young writers, Mr. Garnett declares, was, You need truth, remorseless truth, as regards your own sensations. And if Turgenev was remorseless in nothing else, he was remorseless in this truth as regards both his own sensations and the sensations of his contemporaries.
He seems, if we may judge from a sentence he wrote about fathers and children, to have regarded himself almost as the first realist. It was a new method, he said, as well as a new type I introduced, that of realizing instead of idealizing. His claim has at least this truth in it. He was the first artist to apply the realistic method to a world seething with ideas and with political and philosophical unrest. His adoption of the realistic method, however, was the result of necessity no less than of choice. He simply did not know how to work otherwise, as he said. He had not the sort of imagination that can invent men and women easily. He had always to draw from the life. I ought to confess, he once wrote, that I never attempted to create a type without having, not an idea, but a living person, in whom the various elements were harmonized together to work from. I have always needed some groundwork on which I could tread firmly. When one has praised Turgenev, however, for the beauty of his character and the beautiful truth of his art, and one remembers that he, too, was human and therefore less than perfect. His chief failing was, perhaps, that of all the great artists, he was the most lacking in exuberance. That is why he began to be scorned in a world which rated exuberance higher than beauty or love or pity. The world before the war was afraid above all things of losing vitality, and so it turned to contortionists of genius such as Dostoevsky, or lesser contortionists like some of the futurists, for fear restfulness should lead to death. It would be foolish, I know, to pretend to sum up Dostoevsky as a contortionist, but he has that element in him. Mr. Conrad suggests a certain vice of misshapenness in Dostoevsky when he praises the characters of Turgenev in comparison with his. All his creations, fortunate or unfortunate, oppressed and oppressors, he says in his fine tribute to Turgenev in Mr. Garnett's book, are human beings, not strange beasts in a menagerie or damned souls knocking themselves about in the stuffy darkness of mystical contradictions. That is well said. On the other hand, it is only right to remember that, if Turgenev's characters are human beings, they, at least the male characters, have a way of being curiously ineffectual human beings. He understood the Hamlet in man almost too well. From Rudin to the young revolutionist in virgin soil, who makes such a mess of his propaganda among the peasantry, how many of his characters are as remarkable for their weakness as their unsuccess? Turgenev was probably conscious of this pessimism of imagination in regard to his fellow-man, at least his Russian fellow-man. In, on the eve, when he wished to create a central character that would act as an appeal to his countrymen to conquer their sluggishness, their weakness, and apathy, as Mr. Garnett puts it, he had to choose a Bulgarian, not a Russian, for his hero. Mr. Garnett holds that the characterization of Insarov, the Bulgarian, in On the Eve, is a failure, and puts this down to the fact that Turgenev drew him not from life, but from hearsay. I think Mr. Garnett is wrong. I have known the counterpart of Insarov among the members of at least one subject nation, and the portrait seems to me to be essentially true and alive. Luckily, if Turgenev could not put his trust in Russian men, he believed with all his heart in the courage and goodness of Russian women. He was one of the first great novelists to endow his women with independence of soul. With the majority of novelists, women are sexual or sentimental accidents. With Turgenev, women are equal human beings, saviors of men and saviors of the world. Virgin Soil becomes a book of hope instead of despair as the triumphant figure of Mariana, the young girl of the revolution, conquers the imagination. Turgenev, as a creator of noble women, ranks with Browning and Meredith, 
His realism was not, in the last analysis, a realism of disparagement, but a realism of affection. His farewell words, Mr. Garnett tells us, were, Live and love others, as I have always loved them. End of section 18